Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Thank you, Professor Haidt, and thank you to our co-sponsors today, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and Heterodox Academy. Thank you for making this conversation possible. I want to welcome our in-person, our video, and our podcast audiences to this first ever live edition of So To Speak, the free speech podcast. I'm your host, Nico Perino, and for those not familiar with this podcast, every other week, So To Speak takes an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. This week, we are taking a small step away from purely free speech issues to look at a related issue of profound importance, and that is, of course, viewpoint diversity. In particular, we are going to be looking at viewpoint diversity on campus. We are, of course, on a college campus today. We are at New York University in Manhattan, and we're going to be exploring some fundamental questions about viewpoint diversity, such as, are college campuses experiencing a decline in viewpoint diversity? Do American universities prepare students for life in a politically divided democracy? And does political orthodoxy reduce the quality of research, scholarship, and education? Helping to guide us as we try to answer these questions today is a distinguished panel of Heterodox Academy members. But before I introduce the panel, I want to encourage those in today's audience and watching live online to participate in the conversation using the hashtag FireHXA. It's up on the screens here in, at NYU. Um, some questions that are submitted online will be used during the Q&A portion of the event. Now, on to the panel. Closest to me is Professor Sam Abrams. Professor Abrams is a professor of politics and social sciences at Sarah Lawrence College. He is also a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, a faculty fellow at the Center for Advanced Social Science Research here at NYU, and he is also a visiting fellow at American Enterprise Institute, AEI, and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Professor Abrams, I'm told you are also an amateur watchmaker. Are you wearing one of your watches now? Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> no, I, I'm actually not. I'm uh, wearing a piece from the Glashütte region uh, in Germany. I, I mention that because not every great watch comes out of Switzerland. They do wonderful work, but there's some very, very good people uh, in, in uh, Germany and actually around London. Well, I'm now, assuming so. it keeps time, so you it can does. keep on it schedule does. It, it, it always works. <laughs> and then to his, to your right, is Professor Nadine Strawson. She's a professor of law at New York Law School, and from 1991 to 2008, she served as president of the American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. Interestingly, uh, when she stepped down as president, Supreme Court Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Antonin Scalia, and David Souter participated in her farewell tribute Speak luncheon. of viewpoint diversity. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> her forthcoming book, Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech, Not Censorship, will be punished by public, not punished. <laughs> I'm sure it will. It, will, it might be it punished. Will, it yes, will. it might be punished. But it will also it will also be published by Oxford University Press next April. Professor Strawson, in addition to transcending partisanship on the Supreme Court, I understand you also 
bring people together as an actor and sometimes cabaret performer. Is well, right? yes. I, I if I had any real talent, I would be a singer. And in New York, you don't have to have real talent <laughs> to perform in a cabaret. You just pay $100 to something called the learning experience, do three rehearsals, and get up on the stage. So I sang <laughs> Je ne regrette rien, but I think the audience regretted a lot. <laughs> Well, I don't speak whatever language that was you just you just used, but <laughs> to Nadine's uh, right, you're right, is Professor Mark Lilla. He is a professor of humanities at Columbia University, where he specializes in intellectual history with a particular focus on Western political and religious thought. He is a prolific writer. His most recent book, which came out in August and has stirred up quite a bit of discussion, is entitled The Once and Future Liberal after identity politics. If I'm not mistaken, he also has roots similar to Eminem, the rapper. Is that right, Professor Lilla? Yes, we grew up a few miles away. <laughs> uh, fortune missed me by about that much. <laughs> <laughs> and then last but certainly not least, sitting next to Professor Lilla is Professor April Kelly Wozner. She is a professor of political science and chair of the Department of Politics, Philosophy, and Legal Studies at Elizabethtown College. She is also director of the Masters in Public Policy program. Wow, you're busy. I'm really busy. <laughs> uh, her research explores the intersection of politics and higher education. And in 2011, she joined two other writers in authoring a book called The, Divi the Still Divided Academy, How Competing Visions of Power politics and diversity complicate the mission of higher education. Uh, Professor Kelly Wozner, does your book feel more relevant today than it did when it came out in 2011? I wish I could say it was all wrong. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, it might have been the first time in my life I was actually really right about something. And so um, whatever's wrong in the book, we say that's my husband's part. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm hoping we can discuss a little bit of your book here during the panel discussion. But before we begin, I want to do a bit of scene setting. It's one thing to talk in the abstract, but it's another thing to talk about the cases. I don't think I need to remind anyone in this audience that debates over campus viewpoint diversity and what constitutes appropriate speech and scholarship on a college campus have been headline news. I want to use these controversies, in some cases, to inform today's discussion. And in one such controversy from earlier this year that grabbed headlines, Rhodes College Assistant Professor Rebecca Tuval she sparked outrage with the publication of a piece that some of you might have heard about called The Defense of Transracialism. The piece was published by the Philosophy Journal, Hypatia, it's a feminist philosophy journal. And the article explored the case of Rachel Dolezal, who in 2015, as I'm sure many of you recall, was re revealed to be a white woman despite her claims of being black. Professor Tuvol explored the controversy through the lens of discussions surrounding transgender rights, arguing that since we should accept transgender individuals, and I'm quoting her here, since we should accept transgender individuals' decisions to change sexes, we should also accept transracial individuals' decisions to change races. Her goal was to provoke questions, and she certainly did, but she might have gotten a little bit more than she bargained for. There was intense public backlash from individuals inside and outside the academy, many of whom called for her firing and for a retraction of the article. The, the backlash prompted a public apology on Facebook from many of Hypatia's editors, followed by a rebuttal from Hypatia's board of directors who defended the piece, arguing that it had went through the proper, the proper peer review process. But Professor Tuville is not alone, of course. Just yesterday, 
Inside Higher Education ran the headline, A Dangerous Withdrawal, and I'm holding up the article here. Their story was about another controversial journal article, this time called The Case for Colonialism. The article was recently revoked by its publisher, but not because of poor scholarship or publication irregularities. As Inside Higher Ed talks about, there was that in criticism, of course, but rather because of threats to the journal's editor over publishing the piece. And of course, there's Lisa Durden, an adjunct professor at New Jersey's Essex County College, who was fired by the college for defending a Black Lives Matter event on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. There's also University of Professor, uh, University, excuse me, of Pennsylvania law professor Amy Wax, Evergreen State professors Brett Weinstein and Heather Hain, Yale researcher Christine Latin, and the list goes on. All of these individuals have faced controversies this year alone and in some cases face demands for their jobs, not necessarily because of bad scholarship, but rather for presenting the ideas inside and outside of the academy that some didn't agree with. Now, Sam, I want to begin this conversation with you, though I want to encourage other panelists to jump in at any point tonight if they feel they have something to add or, most importantly, something to disagree with. So, I've, Sam, I've just provided a couple of anecdotes which on their own may or may not be concerning to the panel here. But as some say, the plural of anecdote is not data. So do we have any data to demonstrate that there's something to these anecdotes, that there's a trend that certain topics for research or discussion are taboo in the academy? Or is it more or less what we've been seeing for the past 30 to 40 years in social media or a hyperpartisan news environment is driving? Got it. In terms of data over, are there topics that are off limits? Uh, I have never seen anyone actually try to quantify that in any meaningful way. Uh, there are certainly numerous topics that I have been told very much informally we I'm can't talk about. Yes, we don't do it. It's not a good idea. Uh, for some of those folks that you mentioned, uh, quite frankly, I'm, I'm not so sure why they wrote if they weren't tenured. Hmm. Um, they know there's a consequence. You cannot plead ignorance here. People know that your careers are on the line. Fair or unfair, I'm surprised that some of them would do it. Um, as actually you were doing the introductions, one thing that, that struck me as interesting is, as a professor at Sarah Lawrence College, one of our nation's most progressive uh, left-leaning institutions. In, in New York? Here in New York, yes. What I thought was interesting is this panel would never happen, not just because of the topic, but quite frankly, they would say there's you know, no diversity on this panel for other reasons, uh, racial, ethnic, gender, and, and, and so on. So, um, you know, for better or for worse, uh, I, I would say right now that, quite frankly, discussion is shut down by anybody. But I want to follow up a bit here because sure. you have said that when you first came on board at Sarah Lawrence yes. College that you felt a bit uncomfortable. Yes. Right? So. And you said that it's easier to just keep to yourself <coughs> if you have opinions that don't necessarily fit within whatever the campus or orthodoxy is at Sarah Lawrence mm -hmm. or campuses generally, mm -hmm. right? Yes, I mean, the, the, the reality was on my second day of uh, teaching, I, I was uh, attacked by a board of trustee member. I used a term from one of my dissertation advisors, uh, which was the dark side of civic engagement. Uh, that evening I was accused of being a racist. And uh, this is a story I now tell publicly, uh, very, very proudly. Because I realized, look, I, I, I was in New York City. I wanted to keep a job. Uh, this was shortly after the uh, collapse of Wall Street. Universities were not uh, flush with cash. Universities were not rolling out the red carpet to, to hire uh, young faculty members. Uh, so I realized very quickly, 
I may be right, but is this worth fighting about right now? The answer is no. I, I did what some of our colleagues have been writing about, which is uh, trying to pass on the right. I, I you know, tried to be quiet. I put my head down, uh, earned tenure pretty quickly. And, and as soon as that happened, I started speaking up and have not stopped. But the, the, and, and, and I think it's making a difference to a degree. But to these other folks who are untenured, I, I'm surprised they would do it. Yeah, well. And, and good because I'm really shocked and disappointed by how many tenured faculty members are squandering that precious vanishing yes. privilege by not being courageous enough. We have the greatest platform in the world. We should be using it. And, and that's one of the things that I love about Heterodox and everyone on it. Whether we agree or not, we have this platform. It's a privilege and an honor in this country to be able to have that. Certainly, if we look at other places, whether it's what's going on in Budapest and so on, we don't have that privilege. So I, I find it frustrating when my colleagues, and I mean colleagues broadly, mm -hmm. refuse or choose to, to stay quiet and go and not home. rock the boat. Exactly. Yeah. April, I want to turn over to you next to, to reflect on data again. Uh, you've done a, quite a bit of research on political intolerance, which you find to be growing. Mm -hmm. What effect, if any, do you believe political toleration has on this discussion? Because when I think about some of these controversies, they don't necessarily fit into nice, neat political buckets. But political tolerance is everything, and it's everything we're talking about. So when we talk about political tolerance, we're not talking about whether or not you like somebody. And so there's some confusion about that. Um, the Economist ran an article about a year ago that said young people are more tolerant than ever because they like all these people that we used to not like. Um, that's not what we mean by tolerance. What we mean by tolerance is how you treat the people you most fundamentally dislike. Um, and so it's whether or not you allow people that you most fundamentally disagree with or even that you think are dangerous to society to have a public protest, to, to um, have a book published and put in the public library. And one of the common questions is whether or not you would allow somebody with those views you despise to teach college and university courses. And that consistently is the lowest level of tolerance of all the measures, whether or not you would let somebody speak in your community or publish a book. The one about college professors always has the lowest level of acceptance. And so I think what we're seeing has everything to do with political tolerance. But research finds that the more educated you are, the more tolerant you're supposed to be. Is that not correct? That, that is correct, and it's still true. And so as we start talking about what's happening in higher education, one of the things that I repeatedly point out is that I don't think higher education institutions are causing this problem because it is still the case that people that go to college or university are more politically tolerant than people that don't. That is still true. But we are seeing big trends in society where for the first time since we started measuring political <clears throat> tolerance, the youngest generation is no longer more politically tolerant than their parents. That always used to be the case since the 1950s when we started studying it. And so the trend has reversed. Young people are now less tolerant than their parents. And that's a big change. And we're seeing the effects of that in society broadly. And then in higher education, I think because there is an ideological imbalance, when it does rise up, it can be a little more pointed and a little more powerful. Is there any attempt to compare the extent or lack of ideological diversity on campus with the tolerance level of the graduates? It's like you, you knew exactly what question oh, to ask me. So, so I just started doing some research oh, wow. on this. Um, and there is a relationship between exposure to intellectual diversity um, and your levels of political tolerance. And we knew that from social psychology research going back. But I did an experiment on my own campus where I looked at ideological diversity within people's majors. 
um, based on the standard deviation of ideology within the major, and then correlated that with levels of whether or not they would attend a talk by somebody that they found offensive, other measures of tolerance, and there's a relationship. And so we just started playing with some national data, and it holds there too, just in case you're thinking that my college is special because I'm there and I'm remarkable, um, <laughs> which is true, but, but, but it's also true of the national data. We're seeing those trends where um, even within majors, the more diverse a major is, the higher the level of political tolerance. Sam, I know you want to chime in. One thing that actually came out this morning from my uh, former colleague John Carey up at Dartmouth actually found something that supports exactly what you said, which is authoritarianism and, and trust for the democratic system. As of the data that was released this morning, this is the first generation that is actually more authoritarian and more accepting of authoritarianism than what we've seen in the last three or four generations, which is very, very troubling to me. Yeah. Well, let me ask you the question that I always get. Why should, what's so good about tolerance? Why should we tolerate people who are hateful right. and, and spew hatred? Right, and, and what the research on political tolerance has shown for 60 years is that there are consequences to political intolerance beyond silencing the very group that you've just targeted. And so, um, for example, when we look at tolerance towards different groups, it's all positively correlated. So people who don't want racists to speak also don't want radical Muslims to speak and also don't want communists to speak. They're all positively correlated because what happens, I think, is that people apply this fairness principle where they say, well, if you can't talk because you offend me, then maybe somebody else shouldn't be able to speak because they offend somebody else. And so what happens is, is um, the conclusions that researchers have, have made for 60 years is that it threatens democratic vitality, that everyone perceives there to be less political freedom in an environment when tolerance starts to decline. Well, Mark, I want to talk to you about your book, The Once and Future Liberal, because April, you correct me if I'm wrong, but you said it's not entirely the campuses or maybe not even for the most part, the campuses that is driving these divisions, these intolerances, correct? I would argue that the students come to us pretty intolerant already. <laughs> <laughs> but Mark, in your book, you discuss the role that identity politics mm. plays in shaping modern discourse, particularly on the left. And you, and you say that your story, quote, places special emphasis on universities. And you write in your book that in the 60s and 70s, the left retreated to the universities, both politically and ideologically, from other civic centers. You talk about the famous 1962 Port Huron Statement, which identified universities as an, quote, overlooked seat of influence. And you say the shift to the university was largely successful. And you go on to talk about how, quote, the retreating new left turned the university into a pseudo-political theater for staging of operas and melodramas. <laughs> is the new left, as you put it, and you're a member of the left, as you make clear in your book, perhaps, and per, or perhaps a focus on identity politics more broadly, a main cause of some of these controversies we're seeing play out on today's campuses? Or is it more complicated, as April puts it? Uh, well, uh, I'm sure she'll add some other complications, <laughs> but you know, um, People's idea of what happens when you read a book, uh, write a book is that you get all these ideas, you learn a lot, and then you put them out there. Instead, what happens is you take a shot in the dark, you get a reaction to your book, and then you start learning. And so I've done a lot of learning since the book has come out, given the hostile reaction that I've gotten and when I've gone to campuses and so on. And I think you know, the turn to identity politics is absolutely crucial to understanding the phenomena that uh, all of us have been talking about. And that's because if you see your politics as an extension of your intimate self-definition, then any attack on your ideas 
is interpreted as an attack on yourself. This is the key thing, and I wish I had put that front and center in the book rather than burying what I now take to be the lead. That um, if, uh, if you come to college or you're just raised watching the news or whatever, and uh, you begin thinking about politics by trying to understand the world out there, and then once you understand the world and the forces out there, you move closer to home and see you know, what's going on nearby to you and uh, concerning things that interest you in order to understand how to be effective. But if on the, uh, uh, and that's certainly when I was in college in the 70s, that's pretty much what happened. We had to have views on everything. We had to explain world history. We had to make sense of communism and socialism and everything. Uh, but if you start from the other side, from inside out, and you begin with this intimate struggle for defining just who you are and everything's changing every day and your identity is this little homunculus inside that needs to be fed and watered, um, <laughs> then uh, you actually, that's shift, if that is shifting all the time, your politics are going to feel very fragile. And any challenge to your politics is going to feel like a threat to you. So, so what we've seen, I think, is, is the, the death of passionate but disinterested political commitment. That is, that you are committed to something passionately because you believe in the justice of a cause, it having perhaps nothing to do with you. It may have everything to do with you. It may be possible, right? But the whole model of what it is to become political has changed. And that is not just a question of what's happened in our universities or our schools. It's a turn within over the past 30 years in our entire culture, a kind of narcissism, self-absorption. I don't need to go on about that. Um, and, but now we're seeing the political fruit of it. So it's not just whether I learn to be tolerant of someone else. I think actually that may be only half the model or even the wrong model. The question is, how do I deal with myself, right? And how do I detach my definition of myself from getting engaged and learning about the rest of the world? You say we're seeing some of the political fruit from this development. Do you mean that it's manifesting in it in some of the ways that John was talking about earlier with the hecklers' vetoes on campus, the heckling of speakers, which you may or may not have experienced, some of the violence? Do you think that's one of these manifestations? Yes, and um, I, I just ran into this at Rutgers a couple weeks ago. I was there with another group. Some of the organizers are here, and uh, BLM tried to break it up, and eventually they came in. And what was very striking about it is that, at least for the ones who came in, who may be the AAA team, not the major leagues, is that they were impervious to in, even any kind of conversation. It was like they were on automatic pilot. And it was like this had become the new following gong for college students, right? And um, there was uh, uh, no, they were breaking it up constantly. But but it was like all of their nerves had been put on the outside of, of, of their skin, and so everything was just an immediate, almost rote, learned, mouse-like in a psychological experience response to any word that came up, to any thought that. That got expressed. Well, Nadine, I want to I want to present a case study here that's probably most relevant to you as the former president of the ACLU. Mm-hmm. Last month, yeah. you can probably guess what this is. Th- this is last month. Students affiliated with Black Lives Matter at William and Mary shut down an event where a member of the ACLU of Virginia 
was scheduled to speak. The students shut it down for ACLU's role in defending the free speech rights of some of the alt-right white supremacist marchers in Charlottesville in August. The protesters shouted, ACLU, you protect Hitler too. The revolution will not uphold the Constitution. And liberalism is white supremacy. Presumably, the goal of the protest was to prevent certain topics or arguments from being presented. And they were, of course, successful in that. And you, of course, have a book that I'm sure addresses much of this hate, why we should resist it with free speech, not censorship. In your research, have you found that there's that sometimes these efforts to silence ideological opponents work? And what do you think they're trying to accomplish? Well, it was the, ironically, the executive director of the ACLU of Virginia was going to be speaking on campus about free speech rights on campus. And, and she even uh, said, I like this yes, when the protesters exactly. started. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, the students very proudly videotaped their breaking of the law. They're violating her free speech rights and the audience free speech rights and the uh, campus regulations. And actually, they boasted, we shut down a campus program, uh, which is very, very sad. I put myself in her position because, as you forecast, <laughs> my book is going to be punished, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I was wondering, what is the most constructive way as a teacher, as somebody who definitely wants to empathize with them? And I am... I dislike their ideas, but I tolerate them, right? So I don't want to demonize and disparage these protesters the way I think too often happens. So what's positive about what they're doing? Well, they are passionately uh, committed to social justice and racial justice. So uh, I want to thank them for that, but I would love to have the opportunity to persuade them that freedom of speech especially for the thought that we hate, is their most essential ally. And censorship, more precisely, giving the power of censorship to university officials or government officials is the most counterproductive strategy to advancing any law reform cause, including racial justice and social justice. And, and all we have to do is, is look at history. The history of tolerating limits on hateful or hated speech was the history that censored in this country abolitionists and civil rights activists. I mean, why did Martin Luther King write his historic letter from a Birmingham jail? Because his speech was considered hate speech and hateful speech. And the same has been true for the LGBT rights movement, the women's rights movement, the movement for reproductive freedom. But my problem is, if they're shouting, there's no way I can communicate that message. And I, so I'd like to figure out how to, how to get beyond that. I think I have to have a bigger banner that I could hold in front of them saying, uh, why are you so, I'm so sorry that you have so little confidence in your ability to persuade through discussion rather than shout down. Let me help you uh, improve your persuasive abilities. <laughs> so this is where I think professors need to play a bigger role on college campuses. And, and for, for better or for worse, uh, you know, a lot of the empirical work I've shown or worked on has shown that professors tend to check out and continue to disengage with the students. But you know, at a place like Sarah Lawrence, we spend an inordinate amount of time with our students. We spend 
every week, uh, 30 mm. minutes with them. And when with I, each of them? Every, every one of them. Now, I'm not saying this is an yeah. affordable model. Right. This yeah, is not yeah. necessarily reproducible. But one of the things that I, I've discovered when I find people, and, and there are plenty of them at Sarah Lawrence who would like to protest, who say, I'm going to disrupt this speaker. We're going to come into the city and, and, and try to disrupt something here at NYU. And they, they try to do that. Is you actually have to take a few minutes and say, look, let's talk about where you're coming from. Let's talk about the ideas. Let's talk about the evidence. And let's talk about the data. You have to do what Mark uh, mentioned, which is you have to disconnect and be dispassionate about what you study. And you have to decouple, in many respects, your identity from the other questions and puzzles that you're trying to study. And you then call out the hypocrisy of the students and say, if you actually are for free speech, you'll listen. Mm -hmm. If you actually want to claim that you're an adult and understand reason and, and, and thought, you'll listen to me. I'll listen to you, but you need to listen to me in, in, in return. And unfortunately, I'm finding that at many colleges and universities, in particular universities, where the only thing that matters to many faculty is publish, publish, publish. And there's great value in that. But we need to go back to being teachers. And I feel weird saying this as someone who likes to publish oh. too. But I, and you know, this is not a knock on any other individual or, or school, but uh, collectively, I, I think we've dropped the ball as teachers. And we really need to step back in and say, look, let's talk about this. Let's be respectful. Let's listen. We can have numerous teachers. But the we question is, is there going to be mutual respect from the other side? And I've had Maybe not, recently one on at, one, it works. At, at another liberal arts college, uh, a, a professor said to me recently that students say to her, why should I waste my time hearing ideas that I know I'm going to disagree with? It's up to us uh, to show them to, why. Yeah, yeah. And we need to be the bigger people. We, a lot of us have PhDs. We are supposed to know something with that. I'm supposed to be able to answer that, and I sure hope I could, if it's in an area that I'm let me, uh, conversant. Let me yeah, be, be devil's advocate sure. here for a second, because Nadine, you said a moment ago that um, uh, King, Dr. King was in Birmingham jail mm -hmm. because he, he was thought to be engaging in hate speech. Mm -hmm. um, I, I said hated speech. Oh, hated speech. Yes. Okay, and I, misunderstand, yes. uh, I misunderstood yeah. you, yeah. Because I think we, we need some answer, though, still to the question, is there such a thing as hate speech? Is there a distinction between speech that is in looking for an answer, mm -hmm. that's just expressive, that is frustrated, and some other class of speech or not. And um, this country is not alone in thinking, uh, or the, the people who say there are are not alone in the world. I mean, there are whole countries who mm -hmm. think that there are such categories. Mm -hmm. Now, we may want to question that. Uh, they're more comfortable with, ex with allowing it to courts and administrators mm -hmm. to exercise authority. Americans are paranoid mm -hmm. about public authority, in my view. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that maybe we do need to think harder about classifying s certain things. But um, I, I guess I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts about whether there's a distinction or whether we have to act as if, or whether there is none, between hate and non-hate speech. Oh, thank Nadine. you so much. And I don't, I don't, think, I don't think I got to mention the name of the book is um, Hate, Why We Should Resist It With Free Speech, Not Censorship. So it's, it's double-barreled. We absolutely have to fight hateful attitudes and discrimination and violence. But I, I am more convinced than ever, Mark, and I relate to your experience about writing the book because I, I expect to get criticism and I expect to write an even better book the next time around as a result of it. But uh, I, 
as a result of writing the book, I got to research decades of actual experience in European countries, in Canada and Australia, with their hate speech laws, which do define speech as illegal, even criminal, merely because of an idea that is deemed hateful. In the United States, we do not allow punishment uh, merely because the viewpoint or idea is hated or hateful, but we do allow it speech to be punished, including with a hateful message, if in a particular context it poses an actual risk of imminent serious harm, such as a targeted threat or harassment and incitement to imminent violence. And I think that is absolutely the right line to draw, because when you look at how these other democratic countries have enforced their laws, the examples will give you shudders. And what's really interesting to me is that so many human rights activists and lawyers and even international human rights agencies that had been advocating these hate speech codes are now backing away, saying at best they've been ineffective in muting hatred and discrimination and discriminatory conduct. I mean, look at Germany. There's no, I mean, I know correlation doesn't prove causation, but absence of correlation shows something. So Germany has some of the strongest hate speech laws, and yet uh, their racist party just got something like 13% of the vote, and they've had enormous problems of racist violence. So not surprisingly, a lot of German human rights activists are saying, let's move to the American system where civil society uh, exerts a lot more constructive pressure in responding to hateful speech and empowers those who would otherwise be uh, passive victims into standing up for their rights. April, I want to move over to you next. I do really want to dive in to where this is all coming from. And Mark has presented a thesis, but you've written for Heterodox Academy about the influence of the late philosopher Herbert Marcuse on higher education. And I hear some mmms in the audience. <laughs> Who is Marcuse and what can he teach us about what we're seeing unfold on campuses today? So it's the father of the new left. Um, and, and the idea that's relevant here is this concept of um, the paradox of intolerance or the paradox of tolerance. Um, and Marcuse argued that in order to create a society that is free and open and tolerant, you have to be intolerant of intolerance. And this is in right? a 1965 um, essay, Repressive Tolerance, right? Yes. yes. And so I've never made the case that our 18, 19-year-old college students are going around reading this, um, <laughs> but they speak as if they have. Um, and so they talk about this need to, to you know, put down intolerance and then don't recognize that they have their own level of intolerance brought to bear when they do that. Um, the big question, though, is who gets to define what's intolerant, mm -hmm. right? And, and so that's where it gets really sticky. So even if you believe that we need to have this tolerant society, and that means rejecting intolerance, defining and, and choosing who defines what views are or are not hateful, um, tolerant, um, becomes really sticky. And that's where we fall with hate speech codes, is yeah. how who gets to define what's One hateful. One person's hate speech is somebody else's cherished I speech. Mm -hmm. so I recall during the campaign at Emory, there were students who were chalking yep. for, in support of Donald Trump. They marched to the president's office and said, this is hate speech, it needs yep. to be removed. So is now expressing support for one of a, our two-party candidates hateful? 
And there have been a lot of advocacy, uh, including lobbying the Southern po uh, Poverty Law Center, which monitors hate groups. Uh, they've been pressured, and a number of state legislatures have considered resolutions to designate Black Lives Matter as, as a hate group, um, instigating violence against police officers. Yeah. I want to, so if I'm a student at a university and I'm looking for allies, uh, even someone I, th I can talk to about my political beliefs or my political ideologies, I would ask myself where I would go on the faculty. But Sam, you've done some interesting research um, about the professoriate and its political leanings. And I think there was some research done previously in the 90s that found for every uh, two liberal professors or liberal-leaning professors, there was one conservative professor. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. you've done research or written about research that finds that now there are eight liberals for every one conservative, Roughly. and in New England it's worse. Yes. It's 28 liberals for every one conservative. Yes, it is. So, Which is why my time in grad school up there was miserable. And you're saying worse in a neutral way. You, if, the, if it were the other way around, you would also say yes. that. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, I, I, know. Know. I, I want to be very clear about that. Yes. I want to be very clear about that. A lack of political ideological yes, thank diversity. Thank you for clarifying. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yes. So can you talk a little bit about that research and so some of the concerns that it raises for you as a faculty member who maybe doesn't fit into that 28 um, bucket to one, you know? Sure, I mean, there, there are so many reasons uh, why it's problematic. Um, from uh, a teaching perspective, as someone who teaches history and, and, and social science, the reality is the students are simply not exposed to different lines of thinking, different arguments. If, if I want to talk about why the middle class is angry, or I want to understand why Trump uh, may have, uh, or why Trump did win, I, I actually think that my AI colleague's work, Charles Murray, on this mm -hmm. is very, Your very insightful. At AI. at AI. Yes, is, is very, very important. He talks about the dignity deficit. He talks about the fact that there are large numbers of Americans, uh, lower middle class, who are struggling, who feel the American dream has simply slipped from their fingers. I think there's a lot to this. He may not have empiricized it the same way I would have, but I think it's a very valid argument, regardless of his other work, regardless of what people may think. If I'm not allowed to present that, that's a problem. And do you feel as though you're not allowed to present it? Um, I will present it, and I will, will fight <laughs> you're to, tenured, to do to it, be and clear. I will do it. But um, many colleagues of mine uh, will not. And, and this is not about trying to force any particular ideology on, on the students, but quite frankly, if, if you look at uh, certain dominant uh, left voices, they miscalled the election entirely. Um, I specifically wrote an article for the New York Times the day of the election saying why it was fractured, why this was going to happen, and why Mr. Trump was going to win this thing. So you predicted Trump's election the day of the election. It was very important to get it out before the election. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, this whole narrative falls apart. Uh -huh. And exactly, just an yes. But no, yeah. but exactly. But, and, and, and people it could have been yeah, the end of your career right. if he lost. Exactly. <laughs> but I was very comfortable that that wasn't going to happen because there is a huge literature uh, from quite a few people who looked at this from an economic perspective, a sociological perspective, mm -hmm. and again, a philosophical perspective that so many people refused to consider. So, you know, people just said it's Hillary's Well, what did you consider that other people missed? Sure. In, in, in this case, anger and identity politics in another direction. Uh, a lot of folks in, 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 and I hate to say it, flyover country, but parts that are 100 miles uh, inland from, uh, from a coast, uh, they felt that, yes, we can better together change all of these things, were not for them. They were being ignored. The government wasn't there. They didn't have a choice. There was no upward mobility. For better or for worse, Mr. Trump 
managed to put his finger on that. I'm not so sure how deliberate that was or just if it worked out <laughs> that way. I, I'm confused about that greatly. But, you know, uh, Charles Murray hit the nail on the head with that. I travel around constantly. People were writing about this. This, this clearly mattered, mm -hmm. and, and, and yet so many people on the left refused to even consider it. We couldn't debate it. We couldn't talk about it. The polls were wildly off, and quite frankly, the intelligentsia was off. Well, I want to put a question out to the entire panel, and feel free to chime in. Can I ask a question first? Sure. Yes, yeah, Mark. Very quickly before that, Matt, because, um, and, and this goes right to the core of the conversation, which is about viewpoint diversity. The terms left and right are moving targets. Yes, especially right, right now. Especially right now. Yeah. So I could imagine that part of the effect that you're seeing is that from my partisan point of view, conservatives have gone nuts. Some and, and, that, and that, you know, I recently read uh, uh, GW's uh, first uh, inaugural speech where he talks about you know, more compassionate conservatism, mediating institutions, all of that. I could see faculty members, if you just gave them that speech, you didn't tell them who it was from, they would say, oh yeah, I kind of agree with all of that. But to declare yourself a conservative in the era, era of Trump is a quite different thing. Mm -hmm. So how, how do you sort out, I'm not sure what, if, what the numbers mean, if they mean anything right now, the, mm -hmm. the, the differences. So the data is a little old. Ask me in six months and I will have that answered for you because you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, and as I said in the article, the, these traditional definitions have, have completely shattered. Uh, it's not clear what it means to be a conservative or a liberal for many. Just look at how messed up uh, the, the race was for uh, chairman of the DCCC, how many different varieties of, of liberalism were in there. Uh, so to your point of can we sort of define and characterize various positions, we're, I'm, I'm doing that now. It's, it's going in the field very shortly. And I'd be delighted to share that and with anyone who emails me for it when so, we have it. I mean, just to be clear what I'm saying, I'm just wondering whether the increase you're seeing in the numbers, how much of that is a redefinition or people, people uh, turning off to the brand? Sure. So um, in, in, in this case, I don't think the numbers are wrong. I do completely uh, understand your concern. And this has been a concern that uh, political science has had for decades over how do you account and control for these changing uh, definitions. We're, we're not very good at that, looking at it longitudinally. We absolutely are working on it today and being much more careful. The reason I'm a, more comfortable with this is to, you know, this general trend is because if we look at the average American, the average American thinks that they're pretty centrist. They think they're pretty balanced. Um, they'll say that they're in the middle, they're moderate, or I lean a little to the left, I lean a little to the right. What we're seeing among faculty is they're not saying they're just leaning a little or they're left. They're strongly left. Um, they're strongly progressive. And this is completely off from what the average American does, and quite frankly, off from what we've been measuring for about 30 or, or, or 40 years. It's very unusual. Uh, just when we look at like, the psychology of how we do survey work, and, and I think everyone can certainly chime in on that, to take that hard, extreme position. And that's what we're seeing in the data among the professorate. And I think your point that your data is old is actually working to your argument because, yes. because your data is pre-Trump. Yes, so I agree with Mark that Trump has redefined conservatism and, and made it a bad yes. word, but you're seeing that even before that. Exactly. So I think you'd see yeah. bigger, bigger yeah. changes now. Exactly, yeah. and we're, we're trying to get it as best as we can, exactly understanding that your point is completely valid. So when you're saying there was opposition to your presentation, it was not just because of uh, negative associations with Charles Murray, it was just the whole idea that you were presenting that was so 
Well, when the students know that it's a Charles Murray idea, and if my colleagues yeah. know it's a Charles Murray idea, it's a problem. Often yeah. I simply don't tell them. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll present it without that and see how they react to it, and then later I'll do that. It, it's fun to, to teach Milton Friedman that way on occasion, too. Not, not because the goal is to, to indoctrinate anyone, but it's simply to say, especially at a place like Sarah Lawrence, which is all about um, very, very heterodox economic approaches, Here's some other but things to think about. Weren't the same ideas put out by a liberal writer recently? I'm forgetting the name of the book, but it was a best. It's been a bestseller. And uh, which? Uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the book. But he, yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. yes. And, and so Jonathan suggested Putnam from the same, audience. Was sure. the same Listen. ideas with a different authorship get a different reception? Absolutely. I mean, remember, branding and packaging really matters. And Our Kids is a great book, and it makes the same issue that when, depending on where you're born and and, and what station you're in life, it. it can affect. Now, um, of course, it's focused on the development cycle. Uh, Charles is more mm. concerned with just where people are now as mm. adults. But it, it's a very, very similar argument. Putnam is, is um, much uh, liked on the left, much more so than the right. So uh, labels matter, identity matters. So I, I, I regularly hide things from students uh, and see how they react and then tell them later. Uh, this infuriates many of my colleagues. <laughs> I, I want to put a question out to the panel that builds upon what you suggested, Sam, sure. that we're getting poor quality research because there's a lack of political diversity within the academy. Is that true? I mean, is there any evidence to, to suggest that the research has gotten worse as the you know, diver political and ideological diversity of the academy sort of splits? It's hard to say in mass. What I can say for sure is that there are numerous foundations and funding sources that simply wouldn't consider the sorts of questions I've wanted to ask for years or, You've or decades. You've talked about that. It's harder to find mentorship. Yes, it's harder to find grants. But not just mentorship, but, but just grants to do this. You know, mm -hmm. Our currency, what we need in academia is, is, is time and then the money to go out and do that work. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, in, in many cases, if I, if I don't have a particular frame on any questions of inequality, I'm, I'm not going to be funded. And, and that's been a, a problem. Uh, for years. Uh, I, I can't speak more broadly to yeah. it comfortably, but I can speak to what I see in my sort of little corner of the, of the universe. Yeah, I, I want to put this all to the panel as well, but maybe, April, you can lead us off. There seem to be, at least from my you know, observations, certain areas of study that are insulated from these sorts of controversies. Of course, we have members of the humanities on this, on this panel but I'm thinking of the STEM fields. Most of the controversies we discussed today have occurred in the humanities, or topics at least related to the humanities. And when I look back and think back to like the Erica and Nicholas Christakis debacle at Yale in 2015, there was a letter of support from faculty signed almost entirely by members of the STEM faculty. And there could be certain reasons for that, but is there a meaningful divide between STEM and humanity faculties in how ideological diversity should be approached or tolerated on campus? It's a good question. I don't know if I have the right answer, but I will say I think, I think some of that just has to do with the, the nature of the topics you discuss, right? Um, so I can imagine some fields, the contentious political stuff that gets some of us in trouble is never going to come up. Um, it's just not in your job description. And so I wonder how much of that is um, just topic um, and to the extent to which some of us are more in the fray just given the nature of our research and, and our fields. Well some science topics certainly have been greatly politicized, environmental science mm -hmm. for example. But I, I wanted to, I wanted to say, yeah those people get in trouble like you can't you can't go and talk on a college campus and be anti like opposed to global warming right now like so so it's not that they're immune from that right. Yeah wonder, there are some uh, I think there was a recent court case coming out of 
a university at Arizona where a bunch of climate scientists had their research suppressed. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget the actual court case, but we talk about it at the fire.org. So it's not, you know, exclusive. The, the issue of censorship and viewpoint diversity isn't exclusively cabined to intolerance of conservative or or right-leaning viewpoints. I want to put in a good word for law school, uh, and this is something that I quite frankly hadn't thought about even as a law professor until I read an essay that Heather Gerken, the new dean of Yale Law School of all places, uh, wrote this <laughs> summer. And she said, if you look at all of these conflagrations on campus, not a single one, including at Yale, has uh, involved the law school. Now, I know that there's tremendous non-diversity on law school faculty thanks to a research piece that Heterodox Academy well, put out. There was an incident at, at Harvard where a professor didn't feel comfortable teaching rape law. She, I read Jeannie Soup's yeah, essay, yeah, yeah. but that, um, and it's true there was a student demand for that, but in terms of disinvited speakers and certainly not shouting down speakers and certainly not the verbal confrontation. So maybe, so uh, she, she her, her hypothesis may be wrong. Uh, her facts may be wrong, but maybe there would be, and this would be something worth looking at, um, and maybe it's changing over time. But her hypothesis for why it's maybe less of a problem, say you've already persuaded me to change the presentation, um, was that in law schools, every single class should be taught as an argument. I mean, I'm a typical law professor and my students cannot get out of any class without being able to argue all plausible perspectives on all issues. And that may mean that they have to play devil's advocates. They don't have to believe in what they're arguing, but they have to go through the John Stuart Mill exercise because not only are they developing advocacy skills, but far more importantly, they are developing their substantive knowledge. And I can't imagine teaching in any other way. Yeah, I want to, unless anyone from the panel has something to add there. I was just going to say, I love when Nadine had her banner and what her banner said, <laughs> because it was, it was about, I want, I wish you had the confidence. Um, and, and what she just said echoed that, and my research shows that. So, so one of the things that we are finding predicts political intolerance strongly, no matter what else I put in the model, is the extent to which you think you know more or as much about politics as other people. And so entering into the marketplace of ideas requires some confidence that when my ideas are put on the table and confront your ideas, I can defend them. And so I have, I've, as I look more and more into this, I am more convinced that um, declining civics skills in civic education is a big part of this problem. That students don't know how government works, they don't know how the Constitution works, they don't have the historical background to understand that free speech is not something the right just uses to bludgeon the left, that it started with the left, that it was important to the civil rights movement. They don't have any of this knowledge or context, and they don't have the confidence to defend their, their ideas. And that is, is what is predicting intolerance. Sam? When Ann oh, okay. Coulter was being um, ousted from the speaking invitation at Berkeley, Bernie Sanders had such a great line. He said, what are you afraid of? Her ideas? Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and Bernie, Bernie Sanders isn't, a, isn't alone. Barack Obama has, oh, on two great. occasions, yeah. you know, on one occasion he said we shouldn't be coddled and protected from different points of view. That He said that in September of 2015, yeah, yes. the same month that the coddling of the American mind came out, which was written, of course, by Jonathan Haidt and my colleague Greg Lukianoff. And then we have Van Jones at the Institute mm -hmm. of Politics at the great. University of Chicago saying, you know, I don't want to pave the jungle for you. I want you to go out there engage with those with whom you disagree and you learn from that and you sharpen your arguments. 
from that. But I want to close before we turn to questions with, you know, we, we can talk about how political diversity isn't tolerated or ideological diversity isn't tolerated on campus. But what do you do about it? You know, that's the big question. What, what do we do to change this? There's a model in Colorado where one university is doing affirmative action for conservatives. Is that the model forward where they hire one faculty member each year to come and like be the token conservative on campus? Is, is that the model, Sam? And, and of course, I'd like we to actually, open this to the panel. We actually talk about that uh, for a number of uh, positions we we're hiring for now. And I, I absolutely refuse to allow that to occur as much as I would like to see more viewpoint diversity for the simple reason that how do we define that and how do we measure that? And you know, just as that might be a benefit right now, it could be used against people down the road. I, I am a firm believer that faculty need, and I said this before, faculty need to act like adults. Faculty to, need to act like uh, the scholars that they're trained to be. We're supposed to, just like in, in law school, we're supposed to be able to look at evidence, data, reason, and know things from multiple perspectives. And, and you know, this is explicitly what you're trained to do in law school. I, I wish we'd do more of it in, in, in more arts and science-y things, but we need to force our, our schools to, to basically live up to the idea of searching for truth and that the faculty need to work and they actually need to engage. Do, do they discuss this idea of viewpoint diversity in you know, department meetings? Is this something that people to, actually To be honest, are people want in? to simply go home. So I have a piece coming out <laughs> in the journal for the AAUP called The Academy about this uh, in, in next month's issue. Faculty don't talk about any of this. They go home. They're not engaging. It's a real problem. And we need to engage and we need to actually be the scholars and the thought leaders we're supposed to be. We all want to be thought leaders. Uh, you know, and right for Vox or Slate or whatever it may be, left or right. Uh, those are both left, but yeah, 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 I can give you right ones as well. National Review. Yeah, National Review is yes. fine. I, I, I'm in there every now and then. Uh, but, you know, instead of going home, we need to go back to being teaching. And, and I think, you know, there's, a, as you mentioned, I think there's a huge democratic deficit. Uh, our students don't know what they're doing, but I, I think there's a teaching deficit going on. Not universally, of course. Uh, much more pronounced colleges than, uh, rather universities than colleges. But you know, when I work with students one-on-one -on -one and it's exhausting and I often come home miserable and can't necessarily you know, spend two hours writing my own mm -hmm. things, I may publish less because of it, but, but man, it feels really good to know that students say thank you and students are changing their minds and students are being much more open. I, I uh, took a, a, a group of, of students to a Donald Trump rally two years ago. This is before he was the, the front runner. People but he was here, a candidate. He was a candidate at the time. I wanted people to see it. A lot of people were upset with me about it. A lot of people had real trouble with it. We, you know, pre-briefed for, you know, two or three hours beforehand. At the end of it, the most lefty people said that was a great experience. That's all I was going for. Mm. I don't want them to, to care so, to you, necessarily your, like Your them. point wasn't to get them to vote, vote for right. Donald Trump. Not it was at all. just to understand. No. Learn, experience, grow. That's what we're here to right. do as teachers. I see April leaning at the far end of the panel. Just because my experience and perspective is very different than sure. Sam's. Um, and I find my faculty are having those discussions all the time. I say my faculty because I'm faculty assembly president right now, so they're mine. Um, but they're having. <laughs> You're they're also ha department chair. As well, I, I, I do a lot. So, um, <laughs> but but I find they're having those discussions all the time, and our students are pretty receptive to them. Um, I'm not afraid of my colleagues. I'm not afraid of my students. I'm not afraid of administrators. I am afraid that something I say is going to end up on Twitter mm -hmm. or Facebook, and some. Somebody with a political agenda is going to take it, and I'm going to be on Fox News or wherever. Um, the external pressure is huge. And so I wonder how much of what's happening is actually you know, the cause of college professors. 
I just find that I can barely make a dent in it, no matter how hard I try. Um, but, but I think we're trying. I think a large number of us are, at least you know, in my neck of the woods, which I know is different mm. politically than your neck of the woods. Sure. Um, and so I, I just, you know, my, my concern is the external political environment I, I and being the product of some internet campaign to destroy me. I think yeah, that wait, there, is, there are other constituencies and communities uh, that affect the campus. And, and one of the aspects of Heterodox Academy that I find so promising, and FIRE is doing some a lot of this too, is um, helping students to uh, organize and initiate uh, movements for freedom of speech and intellectual diversity on campus. That is so promising. We've seen some of that giving, in support of the Chicago statement. Exactly, giving them the resources the and tools. Um, I think a great idea is instead of these mandatory indoctrination sessions that many orientation programs have turned into, to use it as an opposite uh, opportunity to it, give some better late than yeah. never civics lessons about freedom of speech and, and academic freedom. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, Purdue. And before we turn it over to uh, listener Good questions here, uh, Mark, do you have anything you want to add to close out this, this discussion? Well, um, well, I've just been playing with a thought that I've also expressed in the book, and I'm not sure how it connects here, but it seems to be um, you know, an important element of the atmosphere, and that is that we are a Puritan country. We are an evangelical country. For some reason, Tocqueville, when he visited in the 1830s, thought he met the most pragmatic, commonsensical, down-to-earth, let's fix this problem on earth, and boy, was he wrong. <laughs> the American mind is divided. On one half, we have Jonathan Edwards delivering his speeches, putting scarlet letters on people, raining God's judgment down on all of us. And on the other hand, we have Mark Twain, and we have H.L. Mencken, and we have Bill Maher laughing at all of that. And um, there's not much brain stuff between those two things, I feel, you know? And so I'm actually not sure how to confront uh, Americans when they get into this state. I mean, it's like dealing with a patient. What do you do to talk that person, metaphorically speaking, down from the tree? Is it fighting fire with fire? Is it preaching about um, rights? Um, and it may be. Is it about distraction? Is it about irony? Um, and what about actually diffusing the situation from the top. For example, I walk into my freshman classes in the Columbia Corps, and I say, this is the most important class you will ever take in your life. It will be the hardest course you will ever take in your life. The course I'm teaching is, I'm not teaching you these books so, they, so that they become relevant to you. I'm trying to get you to be relevant to these books. If you're not happy with that, find another section. And by the next Tuesday, they're lined up to get into my section. So one way to deal with the situation is also to get back to our job in a deeper sense, which is not just to prevent viewpoint diversity, but also to get really to the serious, deep questions of human life that we're supposed to be discussing in the university. So all of these things are possible to do at the same time, but there's also a way just by raising the tone 
and getting back to fundamentals that we might be able to diffuse the situation. Well, I think that's a beautiful note to turn over to questions. What we're going to do for people looking in audience, we're going to pass around the microphone. Brian back here is going to come and bring it to you. And I urge you to put your question in the form of a question. I will cut you off if you start going too long and you're not asking questions. We're also going to alternate with um, some questions from online. I do, while we're circulating the microphone, want to leave us with uh, a data point that I found interesting from July. Pew found that only 36% of Republicans believe colleges and universities have a positive effect on the way things are going in the country versus 58% who say they have a negative effect. Among Democrats, Pew found that those figures are 72% and 19% respectively. And when you think about the number of Republican state legislatures we have, that could have profound implications for our campuses. So let's just let that marinate while we have the questions around. We'll start in here. Survey. It is a bad That's survey. Do you want to quickly? Oh, no, no. We well, okay, we'll take questions. The short of it is, it, it was a politicized question. Yeah. Other Pew data has made it very, very clear that it's not this anti-intellectualism. It was in response to all this stuff going on. An important reminder to always look critically yes. at the yes. headlines. Yes, and that's the key of the students. Don't take it for granted. Just look underneath, look at the actual data and see what else well, is being I'm glad we have some social scientists on this panel. All right, we'll start up here in the front with the gentleman who's wearing the black. Oh, thank you. Uh, first of all, thank you all very much. Beautiful, eloquent speaking. Um, here's something that hasn't barely been touched, and it very well not be that the main focus of tonight, so if that's the case, shut me up. But, um, and that is the I word, the internet. Um, I don't think you can overstate the profound ways in which the internet has changed everyone's very basic notion of reality. And I don't think any of this could have been happening when I grew up before computers existed. It just couldn't, not the same way, certainly. Um, psychologically, existentially, socially, I mean, everything. Would you like to care? So, so uh, the internet. How does the internet, internet play yes. into this? Yeah. I'd be happy April. to respond to that because I, I, I talk about this some in some of the papers I've written. Um, one of the things that predicts tolerance is exposure of viewpoint diversity. What's happening on the internet is people are able to isolate more and more into these echo chambers, right? And so there's study after study after study of people's Twitter connections and how aligned they are with their political ideologies. Um, it's become so much easier to block out or unfriend somebody whose views you don't like. And so I think it's, it's contributing to it on that dimension. I'm also wondering, um, Mark, and maybe someone can tell me here, um, in France, in the wake of the terrorist attacks of uh, 2014 and 15, um, the education ministry wanted to do something about uh, training kids to look skeptically on what's on the internet because not only the radical Islamist ideology that was was you know that, that a lot of them had access to, but also urban legends about things that have ha that had happened about pe people being arrested or killed or raped and things like that, and so they're trying to institute classes that are meant to build an internet skepticism, where you know you go into a class and by the end of the class you're not believing much of anything you see on the internet, or you want to check it 10 times before you do. But that's true it, of what's in the New York anything? Times as well, right? I sure, think sure, it sure. Or in a pew survey. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. but, 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 you know, you're 12 years old, you're 13 years old. Are, are there such efforts? Sam? I can't comment on that. I don't think there are from all the folks. I mean, I spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley. I don't think there, there is. 
Um, I, I, I would just add to, to April's point, yes, cocooning is a problem. Homophily is a problem where we can sort ourselves into birds of, you know, birds of a feather flock together. But to your point of going deeper and, and thinking, getting back to basics, uh, the internet has made it, you know, has, we know that it's reshaped the way people think, the way they absorb information, the way they read. It's very hard to, to get students to read and to shut down and just put their feet up and read a book and disconnect. Uh, and, and I think from a teaching perspective, it, it's often a challenge. Um, you know, I, I'd be curious how it is at Columbia, but the students don't necessarily engage with the material as much. They'll, they'll look online, they'll look at commentaries, they'll look at their favorite sites who have commented on it. There are so many books that have been abstract. It's always fun when you look up your own books and you find how people have summarized them. Uh, but no, I, I think that makes it hard to get back to some of the basics and some of the deeper thinking that you would have had years ago. I'm, I remember a time you know, when I wasn't able to do that when I was starting college. Now I can get the gist of a book in two minutes if I feel like it. I still would like to read it though. All right, let's go to a question from social media. Brian, if you could give it to uh, Sarah or Jeremy. Do you either of you have a question prepped? Yes. Okay, Sarah, from, from my colleague from prior. Okay, this is from Aaron on Facebook. Is there any research into the viewpoint diversity of staff or administrators? In many cases, they are the ones who are creating policy on the student affairs side of the institution. Anyone on the panel have any insight there? So, so we touch on that somewhat in, in the Still Divided Academy. Um, and that's your book. And right. it is what you would expect, especially in, say, the student life area, right? And so if you think about some of the... Um, famous examples of colleges um, you know, trying to teach students certain viewpoints and punishing for them for not holding them, a lot of those have not come from the faculty. The faculty still overwhelmingly is for free expression, free exchange of ideas, um, but student life is a different area. And, and it's not because they're bad people, it's because their job is defined very differently than ours. And that's why they come into conflict with faculty so often over, over this issue of free speech versus needing to create safe living learning environments. That is their goal, that is their objective, that is their job description to create a safe living learning environment and that means a place free of hate speech. But we're also seeing ideology creep in. Yeah. Um, I see I get invites people forward things to me and if anyone is listening and wants to forward me more examples of diversity and inclusion off, uh, offices, residential life offices, uh, dean of students offices are now organizing events and these are often the events that are particularly yeah. progressive yeah. so no it, it, it's right. it's more than just yeah. that although yeah. I certainly agree yeah. with you and I see a little that and that's actually. where I think we as faculty members have defaulted the most I think most of us are taking education and research very seriously but we've ceded to this hugely uh, increasing bureaucracy these functions yes. including inviting speakers and organizing orientation programs and students are inviting a lot of these speakers, too. I mean, is it common that faculty members are inviting speakers to campus, or is that primarily driven by administrators and students these days? We don't have the money. <laughs> <laughs> um, I always invite people, but I, I know that I'm unusual in mm -hmm. that regard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, I think we'll take another question in the audience, and we will get geographic <clears throat> diversity. And let, let's go to this, uh, this lady in the back, please. Brian, if you can squeeze back there. You can pass the microphone down, that's okay. Hi, um, I wanted to ask about why we want viewpoint diversity and tolerance. Um, Professor Abrams talked about um, the pursuit of truth. Professor Wozner talked about democratic vitality. Do you think that if we had an agreement about what the university is all about, that that would 
help us in um, persuading people to persuade rather than to censor, or do we need uh, viewpoint diversity in what the purpose of the university should be about? A good and fundamental question. Anyone on the panel feel like tackling it first? Even though you always want viewpoint diversity in everything, I still think organizations need to have a central mission around which everyone works, right? Um, you can't imagine a, an effective organization where people are fighting over the core mission of what it is that needs to be done there. And so our core mission is to educate people, right? And so, so viewpoint diversity is, is demonstrated to have benefits for how we think how we critique, how we interpret fake news. I mean, and when I talk about viewpoint diversity, I'm not just saying, hey, we need more conservatives. I'm not, that's not why I joined Heterodox Academy. Um, in some fields, it, it means you need something else. And so I chair a department that includes our philosophy program. One of the big critiques of philosophy is that it is dominated by white Western philosophy. And I have a feminist philosopher who says, I can't get things published because it's just rejected by these white you know, um, Western philosophers every time I go to publish it. And so maybe in the field of philosophy, diversifying um, ideas means you're opening up to, to Eastern philosophy, feminist philosophy. So to me, it's not just about conservatism in the absence of conservatism. But it's, su it's such an interesting question because in a way, I, I was taking it as, well, what, we're not diverse in that we're all supporting viewpoint diversity. So yes. where's our diversity? Uh, but I think every well, there seems to be a huge consensus, especially on campuses uh, where there have been problems about free speech and intellectual inquiry, that other kinds of diversity are positive. And there are so many studies that show when you have an ethnically and gender diverse workforce, it's more productive, you get more ideas, it's more creative. So why wouldn't we have that same presumption about ideological diversity? And in fact, studies starting with the one that Jonathan mentioned in his introductory remarks have shown uh, that it is stimulating to better thinking, better research, uh, better writing. And uh, Harvey Silverglade, who was one of the founders of FIRE had a, a wonderful line recently. He said about my alma mater, Harvard, but it applies to many others. He said, Harvard's view of diversity is that everybody should look different, but think alike. <laughs> One thing about Harvard, now that you mentioned it, is though that, to your point, um, what is the mission? Is it just education in the classroom? Uh, one of the things to mention with Harvard is that they expanded that, those thoughts, uh, greatly after World War II. And uh, if you look at Conant and some of the others, that's where they introduced residential education. So it became far more than just what was going on in the classroom. It was education around the clock, 24 hours a day. It wasn't you come to the classroom or the yard or whatever it may be, and then you go home. It's now this holistic experience. So I do think we really need to think about that because you know, res, res life, think about where Yale had its troubles. It was in a dorm with the Christakis's. Uh, that plays a big role, and I think we're not necessarily thinking enough about that because you know, we need to think, is the university holistic or is it really just education and research? I think a lot of schools would say they're more than that now. Some don't. Okay, let's phone our friends online for this next question. Do we have a, one queued up? Okay, Jeremy, do you want to ask this question? Uh, this is a question from a Twitter user. How do we talk to people who don't think there's a problem and who don't think conservative voices add any value to the academy? 
<laughs> that reminds me of Nicholas Kristof's columns about a year ago when he He's did He's a columnist this with the New York Times. With the New York yes. Times, and he confessed as a liberal and progressive that believed in diversity in every other way, that there had not been enough tolerance of conservative ideas. And boy, was his point proven by the letters that he got. <laughs> I mean, the one that was the most popular said, why should we tolerate uh, idiots? I mean, they were literally equating conservatism with yeah. idiocy. So I don't know. I, maybe a social psychologist could help me understand <laughs> how to persuade people who have closed minds. Mark, on do you these have any issues. thoughts here? Well, this is how I deal with my Twitter feed. Is I go, up, I rest my case, I rest my case, I rest my case, I rest my case, and then I'm done for the day. <laughs> wow. I, I would also point out that when you start looking at the cases, including the ones we started this presentation yes. with, these are not just conservative professors that are under the gun. No, this absolutely. has spread. It yes. is affecting yes. everyone. The ACLU, liberalism yes. is white supremacy. Yes. That this kind is of not stuff. Just, that, that's isn't straight about conservatives out of anymore. Well. We, we yeah. talked yes. about Lisa Durden at the beginning, who went on Fox News and then subsequently got fired. She was an adjunct, so this plays <laughs> into the conversation about adjunct versus tenured faculty. But we've seen that with a couple of incidents where people go on Fox News, professors usually, that they generate some sort of backlash and then there's repercussions on their campus. It seems to me that a lot of the pressure for left-leaning faculty on campus comes from off campus. Well, it also comes from on campus because the left outflanks itself regularly. We see, <laughs> no, no, I mean, we see people trying to be more progressive than others. I have lots of uh, colleagues who live in a, in a, a you know, state of anxiety thinking, are they progressive enough? Have they done enough? Are they being outspoken enough? So mm -hmm. well, there definitely isn't comfortable. Uh, well, that's because the definition of a progressive is someone who wants to believe he's further to the, he's yes. more, more left than himself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that if that's okay. Yeah. All right, let's take another audience question. Let's go right down here in the front with this gentleman. Um, thank you. So I'm, a, I'm actually a law student over at Columbia, where today we had uh, Heather McDonald come onto campus and, uh, and speak about some of her ideas. Which from the Manhattan Institute. From the Manhattan Institute, yes. who, uh, as you might imagine, was a pretty controversial topic. Um, and while there were no protests, there was kind of counter-programming that was supported by all, or almost all of the uh, ethnic affinity groups, some of the LGBT and religious groups, and seemed to have uh, kind of institutional support as well. But even in, in the wake of that, there was uh, complaints from some of the counter-programming that they felt kind of embattled. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit from the data perspective and just from your own uh, insights, that there seems to be, even despite having all the support, um, there seems to be a class element where some of these people still feel embattled, like there's not enough being done. And I think we've seen this with where some of these have uh, come up, Yale, Harvard, some of these places. Can you speak a little bit to how that pans out in the data, whether that is a striking influence, and, and kind of how that comes about in terms of... Um, Authoritarian, receptiveness to authoritarianism. I want to have Mark answer this question, but as we're talking about his university, of course, if you uh, have anything to bear, I know no, the question No, no, I, I don't actually. It's really a question about the data and stuff, so people who deal with that should be, should be answering this. You, so you're saying, Sam, that there is no good data? I, I wish I could answer that. I, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking, God, I, I don't know. I'm sorry about that. But are, are you talking about the, the students, the, the minority students feel that somehow they're being harmed by Heather's presence on campus? 
Yes, and that they're not receiving adequate support for kind of being... Uh, well, and this is where I love some of the writing of John and, and some other social psychologists who talk about that's a matter of perception. And Van Jones, not as a social psychologist, is making the same point, but as a black liberal activist, he speaks with a certain other kind of authority, that it, it, it empowers the students. I mean, we can empower them to uh, react to those negative ideas that they disagree with in a way that strengthens their resources, that strengthens their capabilities. I mean, it's, you can use it as a, as a learning experience that can make them more effective advocates for the very social justice causes they espouse. So that's another aspect of our responsibility as educators, to help them see the positive value they get from this. And Obama made that point he as did. well, yeah. as you said. Okay. And, and their feeling and sense of being embattled or attacked might not be a campus environment issue. Um, they're part of a larger political context. And we, we live in a politically toxic environment right now, right? And so I, I would argue that, you know, maybe there's something legitimate to the way they're feeling if they're looking at the broader social environment and seeing how people are treating one another. Okay, let's take another question online. Brian's bringing over the mic right now. Sarah? So Richard on Twitter notes that the panel is discussing mostly college life and asks, isn't the need for viewpoint diversity very important in society at large? So who here on the panel has done most? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mark, your book talks a lot about this, about what's happening off campus. And you talk a little bit about how it manifests itself on campus too. But I mean, do you, do you feel as though there are bubbles that are, that are percolating across the country where we're continually isolating ourselves from those with whom we disagree. I know Charles Murray actually has done work, about, work on this. Oh, sure. I mean, and apart. there are people in the room who've done research on, on these various bubbles. Um, and one of the effects of, of being in the bubble um, is that you often mistake your own partisan interest. You know, um, I've, I've wanted to deliver a message to the people on MSNBC, and now that I have a camera, I will. <laughs> uh, to Chris, and Chris, and Rachel, and Lawrence, and Brian. The, at the moment you see that there's been an attack on free speech on campus, be the first to report it. Do not wait for Fox News to do that and to exploit it for their own ends. The people who should be most upset about what is happening on our campuses are people who care about liberal prospects in this country politically. And every time one of these, event, one of these incidents happen, it's another nail in the coffin. And it's your job to speak up first. You know where to reach me. Yay. <laughs> All right, I think we're gonna take two more questions in the audience here. Let's go to the gentleman in the front. And if you, I'm being told by our director that we would like you to stand up. <laughs> yes, well, all, all subsequent questions. <laughs> Not just you. <laughs> just had to be sure. <laughs> and it is on, yeah. Um, so these days we're seeing a growing conflation with um, speech and uh, like uh, some amorphous idea of an imminent threat. Mm -hmm. um, recently, uh, at a party, I overheard 
some individuals talking, uh, a woman was organizing an event, and one of the people who, was, who were invited to said event was a supporter of the state of Israel, and she disinvited that individual because, and these are her words, everyone had to feel safe. I had, I had to make sure everyone felt safe there. So I just wanted to ask everyone present, like, uh, how would you, like, uh, what advice do you have to disentangle the idea that, like, speech is somehow harmful to everyone? Speech is violence or, or makes yeah. you unsafe. Yes. Who wants to tackle this? I, I'd be happy Nadine. to do it. And, you know, and one of the interesting experiences in writing my book in this climate was I had to explain what I thought were tried and true fundamentals that you could take for granted, such as why is speech different from physical violence, even speech that advocates violence, which is constitutionally protected. And so it was a wonderful learning experience, which I would not have had, had my free speech orthodoxy not been challenged. So, you know, I've lived the experience of the values of diversity. But to get to, to the question, you know, speech cannot directly cause harm. There's always that intermediating human mind, at least one. And the example we had earlier of students who might feel disempowered and frightened, and I have no doubt that some students genuinely react that way. But other students can react to the same speech with anger, with, um, with a resolve, being galvanized to organize, and so it's how we process the message that determines whether it is going to have a positive or negative impact, both on our psyches and even on the real world itself. So yes, if somebody is imminently inciting violence that is actually going to happen, that speech can be punished. But the fact that you dislike an idea or hate an idea or think that it might somewhere down the road have adverse consequences can never justify censorship or nothing that any of us is saying would be would be safe. I, I think back to something, you talk about processes and how we process speech. I think back to a quote that John uses often, I think from Shakespeare, there's, there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Uh -huh. and, and John and Greg, my colleague over at FIRE, have written about this in the Atlantic. Uh, I think it's called Why Speech is Not Violence. Um, anyone can check it out. Um, but they, they take this argument head on, that speech um, can make people safe, that it is violence. But before we go to our final question this evening, does anyone else have anything to add on that point? Okay. Oh, Let's, yeah, I would just say that if, the if, mark. You, if you believe that, the, that what these students are concerned about is really safety, then you really believe that Harvey Weinstein needs therapy. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that, let's, yeah. uh, <laughs> let's go in the far back row back there and get a little bit more geographic diversity. Um, I don't know who I'm quoting on this, but I know that I heard it on the So To Speak podcast, um, the idea that free speech is not necessarily an intuitive concept, and sometimes people really embrace it once they have been on the receiving end of some kind of censorship. So the question I had is, you know, given that a lot of us maybe have learned this the hard way about the value of free speech and of viewpoint diversity. Um, how do we teach students the easy way? How do we, whether it's building it into the curriculum or into some kind of um, orientation program or simply in the way that we treat them on campus, um, how do we teach them that the easy way such that they don't, you know, reject it and, and yeah. 
I think that your uh, example could be replicated by even if the students themselves have not been censored, give them examples where the ideas that they cherish the most have been censored. And another exercise that is a chapter in my book is so people say in general, why not punish hateful ideas the way uh, European countries do? So I go through a long list of questions. Well, how would you define which ideas are hateful? And I give them examples that have been used. How would you? Uh, how would you? What factors would you take into account? Would you take into account? You know, it used to be only race. Now it's race, gender, uh, political beliefs, any other category. So people have been accused of hate speech for saying negative things about being a vegetarian or not being athletic enough. Um, what kind of harm would be required? And when they come to grapple with. Ooh, you know, I'm going to have to trust somebody else to make these very difficult decisions. Then I think they become much more that maybe the lesser we could at least move them to the lesser of two evils is letting the speech flourish and be countered by other speech. And I think in addition April. to the examples, you need the history, right? So, Those are so examples. Yeah, yeah, understanding where it came from and how it has been used to give students a voice, right? I mean, that's what the free speech movement was. And without it, how easy would it be for administrators, again, to say you don't have political expression on campus? Um, so understanding the rich history of it, I think, is really important. Sam or Mark, do you have anything to add? I, I would try to remind students, Same. quite frankly, that you know the goal of the university is, is not evil. It's to raise you up and, and, and to uh, help you learn how to be a thinker. So, you know, please, you know, give us the benefit of the doubt. We're here, be, you know, we're not here to make, uh, you know, a great living. We're here because we actually, at least many PhDs, still actually <laughs> care about ideas and presenting those ideas. Uh, and, and, you know, trying to shift that saying that, you know, uh, trying to shift the, the cognitive view of that, that we're here to do good. It, it's not just tech transfer or, or, or something like that. And Mark, just by coincidence, do you have another final note to add here? I, I, I think I uh, told all my jokes. So I, 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 well, I join me left. in thanking our panel, please. I've got one final note to add for our podcast audience. I just need to close out here. This event was hosted and produced by So To Speak, the free speech podcast, in conjunction with Heterodox Academy and the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. To learn more about these organizations, you can visit heterodoxacademy.org, thefire.org, and sotospeakpodcast.com. To provide feedback on this panel, you can email us at sotospeak at thefire.org or tweet using the hashtag FireHXA. You can also call in a question for a future show. Yes, we allow that uh, at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this discussion, please also consider leaving, so to speak, a review on iTunes. It really does help us attract new listeners to the show and it gives me a little bit of a pat on the back for my ego. And until next time, thank you again for joining me.